All right, you found Isaiah chapter 18, I trust? Let's pray. God, thank you and praise you for the night. Thank you for life eternal that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, the Son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for redemption. Lord, as uh, we're in November and social media is uh, going in so many different directions right now, but one of the ways is uh, in daily thanksgiving. And Father, I pray that Christians above all would live with the most thanksgiving. Father, that we would just celebrate all your goodness every day. <laughs> every day. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and redeeming us and restoring us. I pray, Father, that you bless this time in your word. Help us to understand just how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the middle of 11 chapters of pronounced judgments against the nation surrounding Judah. <laughs> From chapter 13 to chapter 23, uh, God just says nation after nation of every, every nation that surrounded Judah at the time of Isaiah, is, is, God is pronouncing judgments against them. The, the hammer that he's using is the nation of Assyria. He's using the Assyrians to, to thump every other nation and, uh, and even to um, bring judgment against the house of Judah itself. And But all with a plan and a purpose, and that is to get Judah to turn back to God, the nation of Judah, the capital being Israel, the people of God turning back to God. What God is telling, you got to remember, this is all prophetic. When, when, when Isaiah declares these things, none of them had happened yet. And, and so it was, it was, it's history before it happens, before it occurs. And it's, it's written you know, through Isaiah. And, and what he's trying to do as he gives Isaiah these pronounced judgments that are going to happen is he's trying to convince the nation of Judah, you can't reach out to anybody else. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that why is it when a crisis arises in our life, why is it when difficulty comes, very often the last button we push, the last person we turn to is God. It, it takes, seems, years of training. Some of the older, seasoned, veteran Christians, um, they know to press the God button first. But it, I know in my life, it's, I'm getting closer to pressing the God button first, but very often it's I'll reach out to other means and other possibilities, and God's saying, no, you're one of mine. When, when I allow a crisis to come into your life, when I allow difficulty, it's for a reason. And, what, and the reason is I want in, a greater intimacy with you. I want you to grow and develop into a, a healthy, mature believer. And so that's what he's telling Judah. That's what he tells us as well. As well. Don't, don't turn to the worldly alliances. Turn to me. Now, so far, as we've been studying this, as I said, it started back in chapter 13. The judgments have come against Babylon, Moab, and then Syria, and then Ephraim is what we saw last Sunday, Ephraim being a name for Israel or Israel to the north. You've got to remember at the time of Isaiah, the nation was split between Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And so he's, God is even pronouncing judgment against Israel to the north. And in fact, he's pronouncing judgment against Judah also. But it won't be complete destruction as it is in so many other cases. Tonight, we're going to look at the nations of Ethiopia 
and Egypt. God pronouncing judgments against Ethiopia and Egypt tonight. So we'll pick it up in, in Isaiah chapter 18, verse 1. And as I said, it's more of the same. If you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you're just going to hear very similar language. It says, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. What an interesting creative term, the shadowed land shadowed with buzzing wings. We, I don't know exactly what that means, but what he's referring to or what we, we get the connotation of is the, 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 it says beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. So at that time, Africa was kind of divided into two major people groups. You have the, um, the northern part of Africa that was primarily Egypt and would be um, more of the Saudi type, pers- type people. When, what he's talking about here, when you talk about Ethiopia and the region beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, he's talking more of the tribal people of Africa, the, the, um, the, those type people. And, and so that's who he's, he's coming against here. He's telling Judah, don't even try to make an alliance with them. They were known for their uh, warrior mentality, but he's saying, don't even reach out to them. He says in verse 2, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reeds on the water. Interesting, the only other time we've heard about that is when Moses was a baby. Saying, go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. And so he's talking about now making this massive alliance between Judah and the people of Egypt, and the people beyond in, in the region of Ethiopia. And we know that because it says, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, well, to a nation tall and smooth. It was interesting that the, the Egyptians in that time were known to shave all of their hair, all of their body hair, and they were taller people. And then the, the clincher is whose land the rivers divide, speaking of the Nile. All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, this is now the Lord speaking, I will take my rest and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. God saying, I'm not worried about how this is all going down. I'm not concerned. You, Judah, you have a great concern about the nation of Israel, of of Syria, because you're shaking in your boots because they're mounting a a battle that's going to come against you, and and you're fearful. But God's saying, I'm not worried about it because Assyria is on his leash. God's like, this is this is my hammer. I'm in I'm in control of this, and that's. I'll take my rest. I'll look for my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine. It's a beautiful day. I got my feet up on the porch, you know. That's, God's like, I got this under control. You may be fearful, but God is not. Isn't that so true when we get overwhelmed in a difficulty, crisis? We get fearful. We get afraid. Oh, God, how am I going to, what's going to happen? It's keeping me up at night. What, you know, and God's like, I got this. I see the end from the beginning. You don't need to worry. I'm sovereign over all things. So verse 5, 
For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he, God, will both cut off the sprigs with the pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. So at just the right time, God is going to pull the leash back on Assyria and, and things will be okay. He's got it under control at the perfect time. It says in verse 6, they'll be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So God's saying, how, how, am I, how much am I in control of Assyria? How, how vast is this going to be, this punishment going to be, even against them? Because God's going to use Assyria and then judge them also. And, and so this is coming, you know, how vast is the judgment going to be? The carry-on birds were going to feed on them for six months. <laughs> That's what it, this is what verse 6 says. The birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. There'll be enough food in the battlefield for, for the animals to feast for six months. Pretty vast destruction. In that time, a present... This is an interesting verse, verse 7. In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord like a gift. Uh, the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to a place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. Interesting verse. And as you look at prophecy, very often there are two fulfillments of the same prophecy. There's a near fulfillment, something that happens in, in history after the prophecy is given, relatively close to the time that the prophecy is given. And then there is also sometimes a future fulfillment or a far fulfillment that can be likened to the times of, of, of Christ's return. I would say we can definitely understand the near fulfillment of verse 7 in this idea. When the nations hear what's going to happen to the Assyrians, in case you don't understand or aren't familiar with the story, what God does on the behalf of Judah in order to deliver them from the Assyrians is a, a miracle of miracles and one that would have been amazing to see. In one night, one angel wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Right as they're getting to mount their attack against the city of Jerusalem, the, the night prior to that attack, one angel, and it doesn't even say like, you know, uh, an archangel. This isn't Gabriel. This is like Angel Doug, you know? They're just like, hey, hey Doug, go take care of that. And 185,000 Assyrians are wiped out in one night. So, think about that. As, as they're getting ready to mount their attack against the city of Jerusalem, fulfilling or, or taking out the entire nation if they capture the capital, God steps in, wipes out the Assyrian army, 185,000. That's just a mind-boggling number to me. Jerusalem wakes up the next morning in victory. Suddenly the word starts to spread to the nations surrounding Judah. This is the victory that we've had. God has delivered us in one night, 185,000 Assyrians fell. 
what's that going to do to the nation surrounding Judah? It's going to put fear in their hearts of the God who delivered them, who delivered Judah, right? I mean, it would me. I don't want to mess with your God. I don't want to mess with you. I don't, we've got, suddenly there's a great respect, there's a great reverence delivered, that's delivered on the hands of fear. It sparks this fear and reverence. And so the surrounding nations then begin to pay tribute to Jerusalem because of this one event. Um, the, 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 the nation surrounding Judah at that time, because of this, this, this one night, just like it says in verse 7, in that time a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. And what we see as the judgment is being railed against these people, there's a time coming when the Assyrian army will be wiped out and you will be bringing gifts to the God of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can fast forward a little bit and you think about at the time of Jesus or shortly after when Jesus walked on the earth, how about Acts chapter 8? We see right, um, Philip go and meet the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? What was the Ethiopian eunuch doing in Samaria or just outside Samaria? He had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So because of the events, these events that we're talking about in Isaiah, even hundreds of years later, we're still seeing the effect of it in that the Ethiopian eunuch was going to Jerusalem to worship. What about Simon the Cyrene, the one that carried the cross for Jesus? He was from Africa as well. Happened to be in Jerusalem at the time of the feast, so chances are he wasn't just there for fun. He had gone there specifically to worship. And so even, even at the time of Jesus, we're seeing the effects of these prophecies. Now, the interesting thing and the fun thing to speculate about is, okay, if that's the near fulfillment, what about the possibility of the future fulfillment? What kind of gift would the Ethiopians bring, perhaps, at the time of Jesus' return? And some would speculate, and not everybody believes this, and you can take this or leave it and throw it out, but some would speculate, and we, Michelle and I even heard this when we were in Ethiopia, the Ethiopians believe that they have the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so there's a possibility that if they do, that perhaps in the millennial reign, when Christ is reigning in his thousand years from the city of Jerusalem, that, he, that the Ethiopians will then bring the Ark of the Covenant to, back to Jerusalem at that time. Possibility. Like I said, don't know. There's, and people think that the Ark of the Covenant's in the Vatican. People think that the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. There's rabbis that, said, that have said that they've seen the Ark of the Covenant buried under the Temple Mount. So where it actually is, I don't know. But that would be an interesting fulfillment if it were to be that a future fulfillment of this verse. Like I said, take it or leave it. So now we're going to look at chapter 19, Egypt specifically. It says, The burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. Everyone will fight against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. So the burden, the judgment that's coming against Egypt um, is, is different in that in the process or in the way that God is going to level his judgment. God's limitless in what he does or how he does what he does. 
God is limitless in how He does what He does. And with Egypt, it's going to be with the civil war that's going to weaken them. And then Assyria is going to come in and mop it up, basically. And so that's what's declared here is that there will be civil war that breaks out among the Egyptians, the Egyptian against Egyptian, everyone against his brother, that's going to weaken the nation to the point that the Assyrians don't even have a battle when they go to meet them. Remember, all this is prophecy given before the fact, history before the fact, before it happens. And it does unfold the way God said that it would. Uh, Verse 3, the spirit of Egypt will fall in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums, and the sorcerers. So in the midst of this failure uh, by Egypt, in the midst of the civil war, they're going to turn to their gods. And of course, Egypt uh, and the Egyptian religion was polytheism and worshiping many different gods. And so Rather than turning to the one true God, which was the hope of God, even that the Egyptians would turn to him, they turn to their idols and their charmers, their mediums and their sorcerers, which leaves them empty and uh, void. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. Historically, that's probably referring to King Esarhaddon of Syria. Uh, he was somebody that did come in and rule over the Egyptians uh, and was notoriously cruel. Um, one of the things he did, he divided Egypt into 20 different regions. He gave different regents um, uh, rule over those regions and commanded each one to completely plunder their land. So probably referring to King Esarhaddon of Syria. And then it gets interesting, not only will this be, the judgment be against the Egyptian people, but the devastation will also affect their land. It says in verse 5, the waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. Of course, the river referring to the Nile. And this is speaking of the Nile Delta. If you look at the the way the Nile flows into the Mediterranean Sea, of course, flowing from the south to the north because they're south of the equator. Um, the region that he's, he's talking about here was a, a lush region that was uh, high, highly agricultural and depended upon the Nile. And so this is going to, um, the, the devastation coming against them is going to affect the river. Uh, it'll be wasted and dried up, which is going to, we're, as we're about to read, going to affect everything. It's interesting. One of the, one of the Egyptian gods was the Nile River. One of the gods they worshipped was the river itself. And so God pronouncing specifically that there would be judgment. And it's interesting to consider that each of the ten, like each of the ten plagues, when, when God, uh, in the Exodus, when God pulled Israel out of Egypt, each of the ten plagues have a, a God that um, is associated with them. Uh, the ten plagues were aimed at specific Egyptian gods, at least some of the commentators would say that. So so now he, God turning his, uh, his attention toward the Nile. It says in verse 6, the, river, the rivers will turn foul, the brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up, the reeds and the rushes will wither, the papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, say that three times fast, be driven away and be no more. The fishermen will also mourn, 
All those, who will, all those will lament who cast hooks in the river, and they, will languish, um, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. So because the judgment is going to be pronounced against the river and it's going to dry up, all of Egypt's economy is going to be affected because all of Egypt's economy was directly linked to the river. The fishermen, the, the, those that, that worked with fine flax and weave fine fabrics like silk, those were all affected because the river is going to be affected, which is going to affect the river uh, delta. With the river failing, all of their industry did as well. Now, you read Calvary Chapel commentators, Chuck Smith and the like, uh, Joe Foch mentioned this as well, and this is a a possible fulfillment of this prophecy. Um, It was interesting that in 19, between 1960 and 1970, the Egyptians tried to dam the Nile River. It was called the Aswan Dam, Aswan Dam, A-S-W-A-N, and, uh, and it was an ecological disaster. Um, they, didn't, they didn't do their homework. The, the, um, the engineers, the, the people that um, put together the plan to dam the Nile River did not effectively consider the ramifications of putting a dam where they did. Uh, it, it ended up being essentially an ecological disaster in many different ways. Um, it affected the nation in many different ways. Um, what happened after the, as they dammed the river, um, rather than, you, you know, of course, you're controlling the flow going into the Mediterranean, but because of that, there was backwash from the Mediterranean that started to creep into the Nile River and bringing salt with it, Okay. And so then the salt affected the land of the delta, the river delta, and then crops, all their crops failed. And so, and then on top of that, uh, so the salt water of the Mediterranean pushed into the Nile Delta, ruining crops and ruining fishing. The snail population, this is weird, the snail population along the Nile River that was washed out every year at the time of the flooding was washed out to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, because the river was dammed, the snail population was not washed out, ended up taking over um, the, the region and ate all of the silks uh, and, the, and the flax and all of the stuff that they made fine clothing out of. They ate all the vegetation so they couldn't harvest um, the silk crops. On top of that, because the river, uh, how much the output of the river uh, actually had, um, very, or the, at the times of the flooding, silt would have been pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. That, wasn't, uh, that didn't happen, so the silt buildup of the river and the river delta caused crop issues. It was, it's interesting, it's actually how Caesarea Philippi was discovered. Because there wasn't the abundance of silt that would then be blown over into the, the region that Caesarea Philippi was, causing these, these big sand dunes. The sand dunes actually began to dissipate, and as they dissipated, they were flying over it one day, and they see this big horseshoe thing down there, and they discover the, the, the um, region of Caesarea Philippi, all because they dammed the Nile River. And so just it was a, a crazy thing. So 
Could that be what verse 6 to verse 10 of chapter 19 of the book of Isaiah is talking about? It could be. It's a possible fulfillment. We don't you know, stake our claim in that. We don't, say, we don't stand on that and say that we're not moving off of that, but that's a possibility of when things, or when that might be, have been fulfilled. Okay, moving on. Verse 11 to 13, God's going to challenge some of the wise men of the, of the region of Egypt. It says in verse 11, Surely the princes of Zon are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise, the son of the ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has proposed, purposed against Egypt. The prince of zones have become fools. <laughs> That's God's way of saying what he said, wants to say about the, the, the wise men of Egypt. The prince, princes of Noph, are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. Later on in Isaiah, as we get in up into chapter the 40s and the chapters, God's going to say, speaking to the wise men, if you're so smart, tell me what I'm going to do next. <laughs> that's, that's, that's God's way of saying, let's see how smart you are. You tell me what I'm going to do next. And of course, no wise man can do that because nobody can see into the future. And so they, they don't have a way to answer that question. God is all wise, of course, right? Right, okay, good. One of us is on the same page. Verse 14. <laughs> I didn't know this would be audience participation. Verse 14, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Pleasant picture. God's hand at work. Verse 15, neither will there be any work for Egypt, which uh, the head or the tail, palm, brush, palm branch or bull rush may do. The The the, the judgment that's coming against Egypt was strong and severe. The destruction was complete. In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in him because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Consider that for a moment. The land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. But that's happened before. In the Exodus, right? The ten plagues come against the nation of Israel. And finally, the, the people of Egypt are begging Israel to leave. They're like, here, take our cash, take our gold. You take everything, just go. You know, Pharaoh's like, just get out of here. And this fear develops when God is at work. Now, key phrase in the next few verses. We're going to see the phrase in that day in verse, well, we saw it in verse 16. We're going to see it again in 18, 19, 23, and 24. And it's going to refer, as we've talked about this before throughout the book of Isaiah, it bounces between present or uh, near the near fulfillment of prophecy and then the millennial reign when Christ is going to reign in his thousand year reign from Jerusalem. 
This was referring into that day, verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. So this is, this is interesting. Part of Egypt in that day when Christ is ruling will be devout to God. And it's interesting because anytime we read about Egypt in the scriptures, there's always this parallel reference to Egypt in the world, right? God called Israel out of Egypt. God calls us as Christians out of the world. Make sense? And so uh, in that day, part of the world, the church will be devout to God. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. They'll be uh, part of the world. They'll be the remnant. They'll be the, the church. They'll be the, the, the people of God that will swear our, their allegiance, our allegiance to the Lord of hosts. So verse 19, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. This is interesting. First, first thing is, is kind of the language. In verse 19, it says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of their land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border, and it. So, is the it there talking about the pillar that's at its border? Is it talking about the altar that's in the midst of the land? Or is it talking about both of them because both of them are one thing? Don't know. <laughs> Interesting to think about. Some would speculate that both the altar to the Lord in the, in the midst of the land and the pillar at its border are actually the same thing. And the reason they think that is because Verse 20 seems to link these two things together as a sign and a witness. Now, I don't want to get all crazy on you and have you wonder if you're going to come back next Wednesday. But a sign that's a pillar in the midst of the land of Egypt that's also on its border. And as I did some research on this, I was listening to different commentators today as I prepared a couple different people said this, and I'll present it. And once again, this is something that you can completely throw out if you want to. Uh, you can do more research on it if you want to as well. Some would speculate that this sign, this pillar that's in the midst of the land of Egypt, but is also on its border, is the pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza. Um, and the reason they would say that is because it's in the midst of the land of Egypt. It's The, the, the pyramid is pretty much in the middle of the land of Egypt, but it's also on the border of Egypt in that Egypt divides itself between North Egypt and South Egypt, and the Pyramid of Giza is right on that border. And so, possibility. Um, there's interesting things about the Pyramid of Giza. Um, things that we don't fully understand. I'm just going to read some of these things. Um, that that are interesting to me, and uh, we can muddle through it, okay? You with me? No? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> They're like, hey, your birthday was yesterday, dude. It's over. Stop. So. The Pyramid of Giza. 
one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, probably the oldest of the seven, still not sure exactly who built it. Most would say it wasn't built by the Egyptians. Shem, so you said, that's one of the speculations. Um, and Joe Foch out of Calvary Philly does a much better job of explaining all of this, but it's a masterpiece. The Great Pyramid is this feat of um, architecture that is unrivaled. It's just, it's just crazy to think about. It's rightly earned. I'm going to read something that I just grabbed off the internet. It's rightly earned, therefore it's true, right? <laughs> it's rightly earned the title of a wonder. It was built with such precision that our current technology could not replace it. We can't rebuild it today. That's how precise it is. Historical analysis shows that the pyramids were built between 2589 and 2504 B.C., and there's many interesting facts about this pyramid that baffles archaeologists, scientists, astronomers, tourists. Here are some of the facts. Ready? I geek out on this kind of stuff, so bear with me. The pyramid is estimated to have around 2.3 million stone blocks that weigh from 2 to 30 tons each. And there are even some blocks that weigh over 50 tons. 2.3 million stone blocks. Um, the area that the, the, I don't think it says this in here, the area that the pyramid covers is 13 acres. The, the base covers 13 acres. It's um, 455 feet tall, and that's after it's settled over 3,000 years, almost 4,000 years. 455 feet. I think that's taller than any Columbus, any building in Columbus, if I if I'm not mistaken. I didn't, so, just this massive thing. Um, let's see. The base of the pyramid covers 55,000 square meters, or 592,000 square feet, with, uh, which each side greater than 20,000 meters squared in area, and they're within one one hundredth of an inch in size. That's how close they got it. Um, the interior temperature of the pyramid is a constant, and it equals the average temperature on Earth, 20 degrees Celsius or 68 degrees Fahrenheit, all the time. 68 degrees, the exact same average temperature on Earth. Uh, the outer mantle was com uh, composed of 144,000 casing stones, all of them highly polished and flat to an accuracy of one one-hundredth of an inch about 100 inches thick and weighing approximately 15 tons each. These mantles were polished so that um, they said that you'd be able to, when the mantle, the mantle's no longer on there, it was stolen uh, by uh, robbers over the years. But you, it was so bright and reflected the sun so well that you would have been able to see it from the moon. Um, let's see. The cornerstone foundations of the pyramid have ball and socket construction capable of dealing with heat expansion and earthquakes. The mortar used is of an unknown origin. Yes, there is no explanation given. <laughs> it has been analyzed and its chemical composition is known, but it cannot be reproduced. It is stronger than the stone and still holding up today. The, the mortar that's in between the stones is still holding up today. 
Uh, it was originally covered with casing stones oh, made of highly polished limestone. These casing stones reflected the sun's light and made the pyramids shine like a jewel. Uh, they are no longer, I already read all of that. Uh, the, the pyramid aligns to true north. The Great Pyramid is the most accurately aligned structure in the existence and faces true north within three sixtieths of a degree of error. Uh, the position of the North Pole moves over time and the pyramid was exactly aligned at one time. Uh, it's the center of landmass. The Great Pyramid is located at the center of the landmass of Earth. The east-west parallel that crosses the most land and the north-south meridian that crosses the most land intersects in two places on the earth. One is in the ocean, and the other is at the Great Pyramid. The four faces of the pyramid are slightly concave, the only pyramid to have ever been built this way. The centers of the four sides are indented with an extraordinary degree of precision, forming the only eight-sided pyramid. This effect is not visible from the ground or from a distance, but only from the air, and then only under the proper lighting conditions. The phenomenon is only detectable from the air at dawn and sunset on the spring and autumn equinoxes when the sun casts its shadow on the pyramid. So only two times every year at sun and, uh, sunrise and sunset can you tell what this pyramid actually looks like and the way that it was designed. Uh, the, four, the four faces of the pyramid are slightly concave. Oh, I already read that, sorry. Um, there was a granite coffer in the king's chamber that is too big to fit through the passages, so it must have been put in place during the construction. The coffer was made out of a solid block of granite, and that would have required bronze saws eight to nine feet long set with teeth of sapphires. Hollowing out the interior would require tubular drills of the same material applied with tremendous vertical force. Uh, it says, microscopic, microscopic analysis of the coffer reveals that it was made with a fixed point drill that used hard jewel bits and a drilling force of two tons. Before electricity, before, you know, all this stuff. It was, it's just fascinating to, to consider how all of this came together. The weight of the pyramid is estimated at 5.9 million tons. Multiplied by 10 to the 8th, it gives a reasonable estimate of the Earth's mass. And there's several more. I won't completely bore you. Um, the curvature of the design into the faces of the pyramid exactly matches the radius of the Earth. So, is this the pillar? Is this the sign that is being talked about in the midst of Isaiah? I don't know. But it's interesting. It's interesting to consider uh, the, 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 the way the, that pyramid and the two pyramids that are near it are set in with one another are perfectly aligned with Orion's belt. Um, the two chambers that come out of the pyramid, the way that they come out, um, align perfectly with these two different stars. It's just, just interesting stuff. Is this the sign that was built in order to glorify God in that, in that day? I guess we'll know when we get there. How about that? All right, let's keep reading. You guys are like, let's go. No, we still have to finish the chapter. All right, verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. All of this 
to get the, the people of Egypt to return. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord and He will be entreated by them and heal them. Hear that mercy, even in the midst of this crazy judgment, in the midst of the Old Testament, God is merciful. He's going to strike them, yes, to chastise them. He's also going to heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one, uh, one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Think about that for a second, people. God is saying that in that day, the people of Assyria, the people of Egypt, and the people of Israel will be at peace with one another. Only the sovereign servant king could bring that about. Only our Savior is going to make that possible. That the people of Egypt, the people of Assyria, and the people of Israel will be at peace with one another. One in three. One of three. Now, chapter 20, real quickly. God is going to make Isaiah a living parable. This is an interesting chapter, weird chapter. Isaiah 20, verse 1. In the, in the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. So this is a, a prophecy that is given in a specific date that Tartan, that Tartan, Tartan is, a, is a person, Tartan is a position, it's like a, a colonel of the army, came to Ashdod, one of the cities of... Um, uh, the Philistines, one of the strong cities of the Philistines, Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. So, anybody want to sign up to be a prophet? <laughs> If you considered what God might ask you to do. Isaiah, yes, sir. Take your sandals off. Got that. Now take your sackcloth off. Are you sure? Because <laughs> ain't nobody want to see that. <laughs> the sand is hot. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> Why did he have Isaiah do this? First of all, we'll read, the, just sorry, just read the next line. The Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years. This is not just, hey, do this for an afternoon, Isaiah. Three years walk around naked. Why would he have Isaiah do that? Well, because... He's, a living, he's making him a living parable. He's making him an example. And he's going to tell us exactly why here. But if you were a nation that was captured by another nation, very often the way that one of the ways that they would humiliate you is as they took you captive, they stripped you of everything you owned, literally. And then walked you, marched you across to their nation, across to their land, naked. And so he's making Isaiah an example here to say, in the way that I've made. So let's read now in verse 3. 
Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So just some people would say Isaiah wore a loincloth and that was all that he had. I would venture to say I'm thinking that he's making an an exact example of Isaiah, and it says there that they will be, their butts will be exposed. (laughs) So, to their shame. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and their uh, and Egypt, their glory, and the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be. Sorry, let me try that again. Surely, such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? That's the question that's driving them. If this is the case, if, if the Assyria is the hammer in God's hand, and everybody, and he's going to use that hammer to level everybody, how are we going to escape that? That's the driving question that God wants them to ask. The question that the Lord wants them to ask, how are we going to escape this? Who can we turn to? And the only viable option is to turn back to the Lord. The only only possibility is, come back to me. That's what God is trying to tell them. You can't turn to Ethiopia. You can't turn to Egypt. I'm going to make them walk across the desert naked. The the people of Assyria are going to thump them. You can't turn to Moab. You can't turn to Babylon. You can't turn to Ephraim. There's nowhere you can turn, Judah. Open your eyes and turn to me. And the sad thing is, they didn't. They still, even with all this warning, they still didn't make the right decision. God still leveled his, his judgment against them. And here's what I want us to take away tonight. At some point in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, as you walk with the Lord, you're going to find yourself at the same crossroads. You're going to, he's going to put you in that position as well as, as he did the nation of Judah. He's going to put us in a place where the only right place for us to turn is to him and to turn away from the, the world. He's going to put us in a place that's going to Say, Lord, it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to trust in you that you're going to deliver me in this. He's going to put us in a place that will cause our faith to grow because our only deliverer is him. That's one of the ways he grows us up. That's one of the ways he causes us to mature. I say, Chris, I'll let you you flounder around and chase after the Egyptian and chase after the things of this world. And you try those buttons but it's kind of like a daisy design, (laughs) right? Here you are. You can venture out this way, but I'm going to bring you back to here you are. And you can venture out this way, and I'll bring you back to here you are. You can try this, but eventually I'll bring you back to here you are, right? And as you go around the circle, you've got a daisy design. Eventually God is like, okay, now follow me. And here's the path. And that's how we grow in him is recognizing, stop chasing the pedals and look for Him, our source and our strength. Amen? I will close there for tonight.
We'll finish up these 11 chapters of judgment against the nations surrounding Judah next week. All right, God, thank you and praise you for the day. Thank you for your love for us, your grace and your mercy. Lord, you, you discipline those whom you love. You chastise, as it says in Hebrews, those whom you love. We try to teach our kids that, that if, if we didn't care about you, we would just let you go play in the street. But Lord, we need to learn that lesson as adults, as followers of Christ. It's, it's because you love us that, that you correct us and you set the wrong right and you allow difficulty and trial to come into our lives that we might find ourselves in a place that we have to place our faith in you so that we can see you deliver us as you did the nation of Judah. You're our redeemer. You're our restorer. You're our hope. You're our strength. Open our eyes to that, Lord. May we follow hard after you. You're a good God. You're a good Father. It's who you are. So we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.